Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Bunker Daily. One of many sectors thrown into disarray by the coronavirus is higher education. Nobody's sure what the 2020 to 21 university year will look like, but everybody knows that UK universities are staring down the barrel of a financial crisis. An investigation this week by Christopher Cook in Tortoise suggests that the worst case scenario is a loss of £6.7 billion from tuition fees alone in one year. Loss of rents and conference income could add another £1.5 million to the deficit. For some institutions, Cook writes, it would mean the end. My guest today is Glenn O'Hara, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at Oxford Brookes University, commentator for the likes of The Guardian and reliably sharp Twitter presence. Hi, Glenn. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) Hi. Nice to be here. Um, What have the last few weeks been like for you and your students at at Oxford Brookes? How have you adapted to distanced learning? Well, I hope that we've been able to adapt fairly well for them, but they've been, I suppose, confusing initially because there is that initial feeling of dread that we're not going to make it to the end of the semester. Uh, And there's the initial confusion of how we're going to supply things. I think we did quite well in the end, putting everything up online in their online teaching area called Moodle. Uh, And I think most people fairly got to the end with some good work done, but it was very disruptive to them. And I feel... I feel very downcast in a way that it, the year ended like that. Yeah, and Cambridge University has been the first to announce the lectures will go online next year. Um, they're talking about blended learning, which means that you, the lectures are online, but some tutorials will still happen in person because obviously it's the smaller groups. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you expect that to, to be the norm across British universities? Yes, I do. I think blended learning is the new the new black, the new normal, the new sort of buzzword that we're coming to grips with. I've just been looking at this today. That for your listeners uh, who are parents or prospective students or existing students is going to mean basically a big mix of that which we can provide online, which is didactic, which is kind of me talking like this, might well be uh, recorded. And that which we can provide socially distanced in a seminar room with eight of you where there would have been 20 of you it will look like that. But things are very unclear on that front and we're all scrambling to see what we can do. Well, I remember when the the Cambridge announcement broke, uh, some people were going, well, duh, you know, university isn't all about lectures. I didn't even go to lectures. (laughs) Um, But presumably if they're online, um, that sort of raises questions about a lot of um, aspects of campus life, you know, starting with Freshers' Week, extracurricular activities. I think of all the the things that I did at university that were not just the cause what will a socially what will socially distanced campus life look like the answer is i don't know uh, the first answer and anybody who says they do know is is not being entirely truthful i suspect that students will be in some ways clustered or bubbled around their hall around their flat and around their courses so i suspect that there'll be some attempt to break potential infection links by bringing them or moving them around bringing them around the campus in groups so there can be some level of social interaction now of course the government is hoping that there can be socially distanced bars that there can be uh, people uh, meeting in groups and if families are allowed to uh, meet in groups then it's possible possible at least that students can also be clustered in that manner but it's not going to look i think at least in terms of what's allowed what's formally allowed a lot like traditional Freshers' Week, not least because there could easily be, and I'm no epidemiologist, but there could easily be another spike in exactly when we're reassembling in in October. 
because it's it's hard to imagine a lot of the things that people um you know want to do when they get to university which might be mm. put on music events uh join you know theater companies like footlights yeah. and so on um do comedy like there's you know sports i mean there's so many of those things that you think will just be i don't know if impossible but but, but very hard they will be very hard and unless we have some form of track and trace in place ourselves as institutions, which might be possible. I know some American institutions are looking definitely to do this. And some UK institutions are also looking to do this, to have their own testing, their own heat monitors, all of this in place, all these structures in place. Unless you have that, you cannot do high impact uh, contact or any nearby activities across students unless they are in these bubbles that I talk about. So I'm afraid it is going to look different. And that, of course, is behind some students, although probably in the end, not a vast number of students thought about deferral, isn't it? Yeah. And, and that's uh, that's one of the, the, the sort of ingredients to the kind of mix of problems that you wrote about uh, for The Guardian about the sure. financial challenges ahead. Sure. Um, so if de- deferrals is obviously one reason. What are the, what are the other things that are going to be costing the money? The other things that are costing the money are uh, big budget twofold. First thing there is non-EU students, uh, what you might have called foreign students once upon a time, um, who are charged enormously more for their tuition, both uh, taught undergraduate, but remember also taught postgraduate and research postgraduate. There are many tens of thousands of those in lots of uh, British regions, and they're not going to come nearly as much. Clearly, there's going to be some of them, but getting on a flight is going to be a matter of taste, isn't it? Or getting on a boat or getting on the Channel Tunnel. So that is going to be the first source of massive hit to fees, additional to undergraduates deferring. Another big hit to fees is, remember, universities are large scale businesses. They are large scale businesses with huge interests in their cafes and their housing and their uh, their coffee shops and all of the rest of this. So you're not just looking at fees, you're looking at big, big hits. And it's impossible not to feel sorry for high level university management, you know, who are already struggling with quite thin gruel in terms of budgets to be hit by almost a perfect storm is a kind of tragic story. Well, presume, I mean, conferences must, I don't know the percentages, yes. but they must bring in a fair bit of money as well. They do enormous amounts of money and especially in desirable, uh, seen as desirable tourist parts of the country. So as you mentioned in that Tortoise article, worst case scenario, if you add everything together, you might be looking as a vice chancellor at a 20% fall in your income. Now, if that looks, if that's one year, then you might be able to get through that. But what if that's two years? It goes down to 15%. What if in year three, that goes down to high single figures? We're looking at a big red brick, hundreds of millions of pounds. Well, I mean, people who don't work in the sector might look at uh, £9,000 a year fees um, and mm-hmm. think that seems like a lot. Um, and universities, uh, many of which have expanded their their student base, um, you know, to, mm-hmm. to get some of that, you know, to get more of that fee money. But you write that they're already, uh, or a lot of them, are already in a precarious position. Wh- why, why are they financially vulnerable? Well, the first thing to say is precarious position doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see, you know, closed sign go up like uh, a firm in receivership. What we're looking at will probably be some form of reconstruction and some form of teaching out over three or four years if they did get into real financial trouble. There are plenty of rumours in the sector 
which you know we're not to repeat anywhere where who who is in trouble uh, but there are certain institutions that will get into trouble but that needn't worry existing students prospective students too much is the first thing to say the reason they're in trouble is you know what what kind of sector hasn't had a very large cost base increase and charge increase over a decade so we've looked at essentially £9,000 plus for 10 years and no upfront government income help to universities to pay for tuition. Now that, frankly, that £9,000 no longer covers across the board undergraduate tuition because of its increases in cost. And because, yes, you can provide a history and English degree for that, you cannot provide some of the other heavy science for, uh, degrees, for instance, on that. So we're looking at cross-subsidy both from other undergraduates and we're looking at cross-subsidy from universities, other activities, which, as we've already said, are going to be hit. Essentially, the £9,000 fee was being bumped up against as the limit. And now, losing lots of sources, that is not going to be enough to pay for undergraduate tuition. And sort of every every sector uh, would like a government bailout. Um, <laughs> yeah. is, is, is that un, 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 unlikely for the universities? And if so, why? Would it just be too expensive? Or I don't know why the... It might struggle. So there will be some form of help, but it won't meet anything like, I think, the amount of money that we're looking at. So we look at bailout, three billion, four billion. You could be looking at quite a lot more than that in terms of losses. And of course, remember that central government might think that allowing some of, quote unquote, the weaker brethren to go to the wall might be a useful policy tool because then they can move in and reconstruct those universities. So Number one, I don't think there's going to be a full bailout. There'll be a partial bailout. And number two, I think that might actually be very welcome to some people in Whitehall because they'll be able to move some institutions around and, and be able to you know, make them, I suppose they would say, leaner, keener and meaner. So is it a case of the of sort of the Russell Group and then the rest? Or are there kind of different, uh, you know, financial leagues of university? I don't think anyone's worried that, you know, sort of Cambridge is going to, uh, have to close down but you know how many at the bottom are, are, are vulnerable to well, merge in, terms and closure? Of, in terms of traditional bottom and as i say closure is kind of in the eye of the beholder reconstruction is more likely than actually you know because there's lots of buildings there that you want to use for something right and often they're new buildings quite new buildings but losing their identity losing their corporate identity that they've got at the moment it's often talked about 10 15 universities uh, how long's a piece of string in a way? Because as we say, it depends on how many undergraduates turn up in, in next year and the year after. But I think there's there's leaks across the sector. It's often forgotten that the biggest hit in absolute cash terms will be felt at what people think of as the top. It will be felt at massive provincial red bricks like London universities, like King's, like Leeds, like Bristol. In terms of absolute cash and in terms of absolute jobs, therefore, at least with some question mark over, you're going to be looking at the big boys being hit the most. Now, the reason the the weaker, the smaller might be more likely to go to the wall, of course, is they've not got reserves, they've not got endowments, and they've not got other incomes to fall back on, like research income. So, I mean, if you're thinking about universities having to, to, to make cuts, that, uh, I mean, layoffs seems seems an obvious one, halting new, new buildings. Um, are there more kind of radical ideas i think you mentioned the idea of like you know two-year rather than three-year courses are there kind of bigger changes beyond the belt tightening 
Yes, there are. And I think that the, the lower down the traditional league table, you're looking at pushing some of those institutions or at least Whitehall and Westminster are looking at pushing some of those institutions into regional or local coalitions with further education, a sector which, of course, has, has faced much fiercer austerity and been much more chaotically disorganised than Britain's universities. So essentially, those, uni- those universities, those institutions would be retasked to do skills training, to do regional economic development. I, and I think that it's worth saying my opinion would be that that would be a terrible error because that is a caricature of what are quote-unquote skills and what is a degree, because we need degree-level skills and degree-level systems all around the country if the government's so-called levelling up agenda is to work at all. So I think I think government very unwisely thinks, ah, oh, yes, some institutions will blow up, we will move in, we'll sweep up the debris, and we'll glue them together with other regional institutions in kind of, you know, technical college style. I think that's a terrible caricature of how the modern economy works. And I think that would be a dreadful mistake. But I think that's partly what will happen to some of the institutions that aren't very prestigious, that do run into the sands financially. Uh, I think I think elsewhere in the sector, you will see, I, I don't think I'd use the word belt tightening. I think I'd use the word kind of bloodletting. You know, you've got 59% of, their, of these overheads of these institutions is staff. So they've got to lose a lot of staff. Uh, and that really is the brutal reality, which I think that hasn't really sunk in yet amongst a lot of a lot of the HE sector. So you were talking about kind of the, the perhaps the wrong kind of reform there. And when we've, we've been talking a lot on the podcast about how obviously the response to a crisis, the response to a recession uh, is informed by the, you know, the prejudices, the ideologies, the policy priorities of the government of the day so what is there a certain i mean there's a certain kind of um the certain government advisor who's been in the news recently uh, who has quite strong beliefs about the relative worth of certain kind of degrees is there a kind of is there a dominant belief in the way that for example when gove was at education there was very much a kind of govian view of what schools should do is there in the current government a very clear view of what universities should do and which things are important and which things aren't that would affect this, you know, this, this sort of restructuring? I, I don't think there is a clear view. I think there's exactly the word you used there, which is prejudice. And by the way, I think there's a big gap between how Gove sees the world and how, you know, he should, who shall not be named, sees the world. Because I think that if if Dom had his way, then uh, the prejudices that a lot of ministers feel and a lot of civil servants feel would be rather different and some of the less traditional centres of excellence would be more would be more bigged up and be more saved in this crisis. I mean, I think as a historian of economic and social policy and to some extent a historian of crisis, you cannot overestimate at these sort of times how ministers, they're not thinking anything, they're just trying to get through the day. And the problem with that is that they're informed by their prejudice is that there are good universities and there are bad universities or less good universities. So there are kind of, you know, there's a hierarchy of Oxbridge, London, uh, Durham and Exeter, then Plate Glass and Red Brick and then ex-Polys and then ex-HE colleges, etc. But the thing is, the HE landscape has changed so much over the last 30 years that it no longer looks anything like that. I mean, I think talking about universities to people outside them is often a bit like teaching talking to people about school teaching when they're not haven't been to school for 30 years you know everyone's got an opinion because they went there but actually things are very very different now and there are huge amounts of quality distributed to some extent almost randomly across the sector 
And if you bulldoze bits of the sector on the, on the basis of how many undergraduates want to go there in a crisis, you're going to bulldoze a lot of provision that costs you a lot of money and is also providing a lot of regional growth. Well, I mean, many local economies rely on universities uh, as employers, but also because there's a whole student driven economy. You know, I've been to kind of I've been to review gigs at venues in, in certain towns where you just think, well, would this venue even exist if you didn't have a decent sized student population? So if some of these, univer- these universities in smaller towns um, either, ch- you know, either, like you said not, not closed, but, you know, change, change dramatically. Is there, could, could that contribute to one of the big problems we've been talking about since Brexit, which is the, um, the sort of economic crumbling of small towns? That's the Nandi, that's the Lisa Nandi uh, uh, klaxon. <laughs> yes, exactly. An, an analysis of, of place and, and time and space that I've got a lot of time for, because one of the things that's changing, especially older voters' view of the world, is their devastated high streets in some of these towns. Now, these towns can get wealthier, and actually lots of people can be getting higher wages in, in some of these areas. But if physically and, and therefore emotionally they look down at heel, then you've got a real political problem. And that's exactly one of the problems the Conservatives are going to have to deal with. I mean, that Guardian article I wrote talked about Bolton and Keel Stoke, didn't it? And there are two places that have significant problems uh, with, in lots of multidimensional ways, which... Without the kind of pride, income, uh, attention, new buildings, which of course are also used by the community that are provided by these universities, one from the 60s and one from much more recently from the 21st century, you're going to be looking at an even more difficult and even more gritty ex-urban future in these places. I mean, the last thing you need is for universities in towns, if we're going to talk about towns, to have to divest themselves of lots of degree programs, become technical colleges or even close. That is the opposite of what we need, really. When we've got, you know, the HE sector is just as bad as everybody else focused on southeast of England. It's not quite as bad as some industries, but it's still got a vast amount of overprovision, you know, in terms of London waiting for research, for instance. Well, research seems to be one thing that even this government would be really concerned about. And there's a kind of large percentage of research in britain is done in in universities larger than a lot of european countries yes so that presumably would be something that 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 they're anxious about losing yes that's right and the, the problem they've got is that most of that not all of it by any means most of that is is provided in this russell group red brick group that we're talking about that is going to lose a huge amount of just raw cash gross cash now not percentage cash of its income of course but but gross cash so what are those institutions going to do they're going to push their staff, including their permanent profs, their permanent research staff, straight into saying, you've got to teach around the clock this year and next year. We're going to cancel research leave, which you'll already see lots of institutions doing. We're going to cancel uh, sabbaticals. We're going to cancel bidding for teaching buyout. We're going to cancel associate lecturers who come in and do your teaching if you're a permanent member of staff. And by the way, we're probably going to have a voluntary redundant, redundancy round and we're probably going to have accelerated losing some staff so you're going to degrade the research effort even if you keep the research income as is and you don't raid that money for plugging the gaps which of course is one one solution here would be to just throw what's called qr money which is the normal 
money that flows from the government to universities that isn't in grants is to shove some of the QR money to plug the gaps of teaching. Even if you don't do that, you're going to be looking at an observable lag in research that you'll be able to trace, I think, through the years. I mean, I'm already thinking myself this summer, I'm just going to have to reconstruct my modules and cancel loads of my writing and research. And and I wonder about, because there was, um, you know, a fair bit of industrial unrest in universities uh, towards the end of last year. Um, do you think that there this is going to be a very sort of, therefore a very rancorous period, even though, like you said, if you've laid out that there are losses here that really are, they're not the university's fault. They are the, the, the fault of the, of the pandemic. Um, but still people will be losing jobs and there are ways of, there are ways of doing it, which are going to be, you know, less acceptable than others. Do you, do you expect to see a lot of those kind of clashes as a result of this? I think it will go two ways. I mean, industrial relations, it's worth saying in HE had got to a really terrible point to the extent where I think a lot of colleagues in the pay dispute and the pensions dispute over the last couple of years had come to some sort of political and even personal revelation that they just didn't, they weren't going to put in the out of hours effort anymore when it was just being sucked up and sucked up by their employers. And there was, there was effectively a sense that there was no limit to how hard you could work. And some colleagues were working, not in my institution, but in lots of institutions, some colleagues were working into the early hours of the morning in multiple days of the week, just with the workloads that were being placed on them. And lots of people, a bit like school teaching in the 1980s, were just saying, right, that's it. I'm just going to work to rule. Now, I think there'll be some of that accelerated by chopping jobs. On the other hand, as you imply in your question, I think there's a certain sort of sobering effect where employers and and staff will be glued together in the life raft, (laughs) as it were, because it is clearly the case that managers haven't done this. Mm. And universities are just going to have to stick together and try and pull out what they can i mean you're already seeing this in the industrial dispute negotiations about pensions and about it's not really about pay so much as about conditions for early career colleagues and issues about fairness by gender and race Uh, you're already seeing i think a kind of sobering effect where uh, lots of negotiations will reach a conclusion which is which are fairly accepted by both sides however i think there is a there is room for this to go pretty wrong where if if student fees go down a lot and i think i would stress that there's a little bit of optimism i think creeping into the sector that deferrals won't be as bad as feared Mm. but if they are as bad as feared and jobs go down a lot there is a kind of big bang effect i think where you go through a threshold and there'll be more confrontation perhaps not this year perhaps not during the crisis the coming year 2020-21 but thereafter so you remember like i mentioned the 80s there about teaching the Thatcher attack on universities in the early 80s, it left a big hole in the middle of the profession and it left a big legacy of bitterness for a long, long time. And that if this is badly managed and in a crisis, it's really hard to manage that that's also what could happen now. And one of Corbyn's big policies was was free tuition funded by the uh-huh. government. Um, very expensive, um, but very obviously very popular um, with young voters. Does this crisis, um, how does this crisis affect that idea or that, or that possibility? I'm not quite sure how the, whether, whether it seems to be more of an incentive for the government to, to, to sort of cover the financing um, mm. or actually makes it impossible. Uh, well, it, I think that's very difficult to say. I mean, I think that your listeners might not know that 
in the last couple of years, you know, uh, the debt that's built up of the tuition fees that are not paid back, which is a huge slice of them, are taken on by the exchequer. They're taken on by the government as government borrowing. So it makes abolishing the, the present fee structure a little bit more attractive because the government's got to borrow the half that's not paid back or a bit less than half. Uh, but also, and also remember something your listeners probably won't know either, which is that in order to stop, in order to stop poaching by um, big universities, prestigious universities in the next coming year, so they don't suck up all the students, the government's brought back the places cap. So each university has a cap of last year plus five percent of the undergraduates it, it took. Now, what that means is students aren't so much as they would have been in the box seat. So again, there's a little bit more traction in government to abolish tuition fees, because if you're not going to have a choice agenda, you might as well just put students where they were going to go before, where there was a cap on each university and then just allocate the money. However, I can see absolutely no ambition or desire amongst the present Conservative government, which has got a large majority, let's remember, to do that. And partly because it would have to pay pay the other chunk, it would have to pay the other 50 percent plus. And it would also have to pay everything up front because, of course, the, the money that it's putting on the, the debit side of the of the uh, agenda the, of the ledger, the money it's having to borrow to plug the tuition fees that are never paid back doesn't have to do that for a while. So to be honest, and also by the end of this parliament, 2024, you'll have had 14 years of fees and you would have to have a plan to... I think, at least alleviate the debt of those 14 cohorts, those 14 years of students, if you then abolished fees for the next lot of students. And that would also be gradually quite expensive. So I just I just can't see any prospect in the near term of abolishing fees. And finally, you're going to have, you know, entering universities, provided they're not having a, a gap year or deferral, entering universities in the autumn, uh, students who didn't sit their A-levels, who had to kind of who's the whole kind of the system of of getting university places um, became pretty weird for them uh, based on predicted grades and stuff. They're having like what you said would be a very weird, almost unrecognisably weird version of sort of freshers' week and university life, at least at first. Are they going to have a sort of I don't know? Are they how, how much of the university experience? are they going to get have they just basically been sort of stuffed by by history you know that this is a very this is just a very hard year to be you know 18 well it's very very hard of course to be under 35 at all anyway because of all the things we know about like high house prices and lack of pensions and and lack of secure work for a lot of people in their 20s so the first thing to say is they're they're stuffed in multiple ways i'm afraid and i'm i feel very sad about that and i I didn't do that. And if we ran the world, then things might be a little bit different. But unfortunately, that's the way it is. But I think the answer really is no, because we're hopeful, aren't we, that the virus, either by policy or by lack of policy, abates after the next academic year. Now, again, we're not we're not medics, we're not scientists, but we hope that the crisis and the risk, remember, the physical risk to them is almost zero as 18, 19, 20-year-olds, the physical risk to their lives. Um, we hope that that will abate and that university life in all its richness and its amazing richness will come back. And as I say, if, if students can be bubbled and tested and heat scanned and taught without the, 
the RE number, the, the, the number of infections rising very fast again, then there will be something of that very rich university life continuing next year as well. So that it is very gritty. It's very gritty. It's awful for everybody, you know, locked in their houses as well if they're over 70 also. But we hope to provide something good and something enriching and something that will be worthwhile. And I think we will. Mm. Oh, well, well, fingers crossed for that cohort. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Glenn. Not at all. It was great. I recommend following Glenn on Twitter at GSOH31. The Bunker Daily will be back Thursday and Friday with the regular weekly edition on Wednesday. Take care. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.